Welcome back to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and uh, I'm joined once again today by Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the United States. We've been examining some biblical theological themes. Last week we looked at the, or last time, we looked at the significance of the seven days of creation and how they structured effectively the whole Bible. And today we're looking at the tabernacle. Alistair, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a, a pleasure. For having me back as well. <laughs> oh, we'll have you back as often as you like, brother. It's fabulous. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the sanctuary that was built in connection with the theophany and establishment of the covenant at Sinai. Why does God instruct Israel to build a tabernacle? It's a good question, and it's not one that's asked enough. We often read through the text and just take it for granted that there's obviously some reason that God has, but we don't puzzle through it enough. It seems to me that the reason is there are several levels to the reason. We can think of it as an architectural representation of what happened at Sinai. The Lord appeared to his people, his presence was made known among them, and that is the foundation for the nation's continuing life. And that's, I think, what we see the tabernacle coming into the picture to perform. It's a means by which the event of the theophany at Sinai becomes a continued feature of Israel's life. So the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai. Later on, the Lord descends upon the tabernacle. And those two things, I believe, are connected. We can see that the tabernacle is connected with the life of Israel as um, a sort of sanctuary connected to things like Eden. Eden is a realm that's set apart from the other realms of the earth. It's a garden that's bounded, a place where God is in the midst and where man is set to God and to keep. And I think we have with the tabernacle a similar sort of thing. It's a sort of garden that's bounded within the midst of the people that's supposed to provide a pattern for their life and a means by which they relate to God among them. Now, I think there are many other ways that we can see the principle of the tabernacle being expressed in various other respects and connections. But I would say that's the most fundamental thing that's going on. What was in the tabernacle? Yes, when we think about the tabernacle, it's important to remember that the tabernacle was not the only sanctuary that Israel had throughout its history. And the tabernacle also went through a number of iterations. So we have the initial situation of the tabernacle where it was established in the wilderness and went with the people. Then we have the tabernacle having a more settled existence. We can think about the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, where the tabernacle is described as the temple. It's become a sort of complex of buildings in a settled um, location where the tabernacle is fixed. It's not moving around the wilderness as it once did. And so that's a new form in which the tabernacle is experienced. Then after the Battle of Aphek, the tabernacle is divided. You have the Ark of the Covenant that was brought into the Battle of Aphek, being captured by the Philistines. It's returned later on, but it's returned in a way that it never comes back together with the rest of the tabernacle again. And one of the things that we see in the temple is finally the broken parts of Israel's worship are brought together in a more glorious form of sanctuary. And that development from tabernacle to temple is one that we can see there are various movements that occur. Now, the tabernacle has within it a number of elements that develop over time. So, first of all, 
you have the elements that are described in the initial construction. You have things like the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat upon, upon that. You have the lampstand. You have the golden altar of incense. You have the table of showbread. And then you have things that are associated with courtyard, um, the bronze laver. We have also the bronze altar. And then there are ill implements associated with the worship of the tabernacle, and they would be um, present in various forms they would develop over time. Likewise, we see things added to the tabernacle over time as testimonies of what God has done. Think about Aaron's rod that budded, added in Numbers chapter 17, or mentioned at the end of Exodus chapter 16, part of the manna. That would have been added to the tabernacle at a later point than Exodus 16, but it is something that's added. Also, the, the table of the law that's added to the Ark of the Covenant. So we have a number of things that are introduced. And then as the tabernacle becomes the temple, we have further things and elaborations of the things that are already within there. Generally, through multiplication, many tables instead of one, many lampstands instead of one, more images of cherubim, etc., What's the significance of all, all the particular pieces of furniture, Alistair? Well, the interesting thing, when we're looking at the tabernacle or the temple, it's important to think of it as a sort of symbolic system. Things are connected to various other things. And so it can be easy to think very much in terms of giving each person, a, each element, a tag that says what it means. Often it's understood more in terms of its system. And we can understand that system perhaps best as we see how it functions as it's used. Now, part of that could be abstracted from. We could think about the elements of the tabernacle in the most abstract senses. So what is the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat? They're a representation of a throne. This is a palace. The temple and palace, it's the same word. And we can think about the way that the tabernacle is a sort of portable and palace for the Lord in the midst of his people. Can think about the lampstand gives light, the table of incense to burn incense as a means of expressing the glory of the Lord. Table of showbread is a place where you entertain guests as they are brought into the presence of the Lord. And so those most basic elements um, you can think of that way. We can think of some of the elements within the tabernacle in relationship to each other. So if you think about the ordering of the tabernacle, you can see ways in which the altar of incense is connected to the bronze altar in the courtyard. The bronze altar is also a place in which things are burnt up into God's presence. It's a table for the Lord. It's also something connected in that respect with the table of the showbread. It's a place for preparing meals, as it were. And we can also think in terms of various rituals that are performed. Sometimes you would put blood on the horns of or against the side of the altar in the courtyard, other times on the horns of the altar of incense, if it's a um, sin offering for a priest, for instance. So that can be one of the ways that we understand the elements. I think the other thing that we can see is that the elements are distinguished from each other in different ways. We can think about the elements that are gold. So we have the um, altar of incense, the golden lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, all overlain with gold. And then outside in the courtyard, there is the bronze altar and the bronze laver. 
So again, these are distinctions and distinctions in level of glory can think about the way in which the dimensions are given for them at certain points. And those dimensions help us to maybe connect them with other items symbolically. We can also think about the way in which there are structures within the tabernacle that very clearly have a symbolic um, numerical character to them. So the Holy of Holies has a cube character to it. You can see a full manifestation of that in the description of the city at the end of Revelation, which has a complete city with a cube character to it. And so we can see that the whole city has become a holy of holies. It's no longer just one room that's entered into one time a year by the high priest. It's something that is the dwelling place of the people of God with the Lord. We can also think about the way in which the various elements of the furniture can be connected with other things in scripture. So you can maybe think about the contrasts and comparisons between two wooden boxes. You can think about the wooden box of the Ark of the Covenant that's overlain with glory of the gold. And then you can think about the inglorious box of the Ark that's overlain with pitch. And these are both wooden boxes that were given dimensions of. Ark is not the same word in both cases, but there are Ark themes that are playing through the story of the end of Exodus that draw our mind back to the story of the flood. And so again, that can help us to get some sort of handle upon the meaning of what is taking place. These elements are also things that we can maybe get into this, the way that they are ordered in terms of seven days. Each one of the days of creation has its corresponding day of the structuring of the tabernacle. And those can help us to understand elements as well. Mm. In what sense was the tabernacle a symbolic picture of the universe? Yes, we can think about the way that the Lord is present in the Holy of Holies, which represents heaven. And when we're thinking about the tabernacle, in many ways, it's a root of ascent to the presence of the Lord. And so we can think about it as a vertical structure. As you ascend through those different levels, there's a movement up. There's a movement up in smoke with the burning of the sacrifices and the incense. And gradually you're entering into this presence of the Lord, his holy presence with the divine throne and the mercy seat. And so I think that is one way of thinking about the tabernacle as a world model. It's a sort of cosmic microcosm of the larger reality. And when we think about structures like the tabernacle, we can often think about them merely in terms of rituals without actually seeing the ways in which the rituals are playing out on these symbolic structures. And so the symbolic structure provides a framework within which that ritual makes sense. Maybe the rituals should be best understood as sort of symbolic, symbolized prayers. And so you're performing with the ritual the movement that is occurring spiritually. And that performance is not something that works in a magical way, but there is a real connection between that symbolic approach to the Lord through the sacrifice and the approach that is made in the um, prayer and the associated acts of worship. Is there any significance? I've often wondered about this and I've tried to work it out, but my brain is too small. Is there any significance to the numbers that were given in the tabernacle? Yes. Um, the numbers that we are given, I think, do have significance. The significance can be seen 
But there are a number of places that we can look for the significance. First of all, we can see the significance in the shapes that are created by the numbers. So we've mentioned the cube shape. And so when all the dimensions are the same, that gives us a sense, okay, this is a particularly holy location. We can think about the way in which the um, holy place is twice the length of the Holy of Holies. And so it's relative to that, it's connected to it, but it's not holy in quite the same way. We can think about the way in which the whole thing is ordered in a way that makes certain places central within the entire structure. So these are all ways to think about the numbers relative to each other. Then we can also think about the numbers relative to other structures. So the temple is a doubling of all the numbers of the tabernacle. It's taking those and raising them up, um, multiplying them by two. And so we have an advance or a, a glorification of the original structure. Could also relate some of the numbers, perhaps back to the dimensions that are given for the, for the ark. Um, another thing that we have dimensions for prior to the construction of the tabernacle. Why is colour so significant in the tabernacle? I think colour has, we see the fullest description of colour at the very beginning of the book of Numbers, where there are particular colours stipulated for the covering of various items as they are moved. Uh, we can think about the colouring also in terms of the metals. You have the gold, the silver used in some of the structural elements of the, temp of the tabernacle, and then bronze that is within the courtyard and so that gives us a sense of varying degrees of holiness we think about this in terms of medals for instance gold silver and bronze we can think about the ways in which the colors also symbolize certain parts of the creation so blue being associated with the firmament for instance and the movement through the firmament now you can have colors associated with the fabrics of the tabernacle, also the clothing of the high priest, the coverings of items as they are moved. And more generally, I think you can have color associations with the tabernacle. We can think about the importance of blood being placed upon things and the red that that would, it would be a common thing to see as part of the worship. So the tabernacle, again, as we discussed with the, the sky or our firmament last time, Alistair, the tabernacle, again, is a, a, a symbolic representation of what's in God's throne room and the colours in God's throne room. It is. And one of the interesting things that we see as we go through scripture is we have depictions of the divine throne or the throne room in places like the book of Ezekiel or in places like Revelation. And we also have a description of a great theophany, for instance, in somewhere like Exodus chapter 24, when the people eat, the elders eat a meal before the Lord. Now, it's worth noting what's taking place there. The Lord comes down in a cloud on the top of the mountain. Then the people, the people stand around the base of the mountain. And then the elders go up with some of the priests onto the side of the mountain and they eat a meal before the presence of the Lord. There are certain sacrifices offered at the base of the mountain. And then Moses goes up into the presence of the Lord proper. In many ways, we could see that as a sort of tabernacle structure. The people in the courtyard, and that's where the sacrifices are performed. The high priests and the various other priests leaders of the priests, and then the elders going up on the side of the mountain, connected with the table of showbread, and then Moses going into the very presence of the Lord and seeing the theophanic glory of the Lord. And that is 
the very holy of holies, the throne room itself. Now they see the Lord and they eat before him and they see his throne as it were from below and this firmament structure above them. Now, as we look through the rest of scripture, we can see ways in which the tabernacle is a sort of representation, a manifestation in an architectural form of the living throne of God, where God dwells seated above the cherubim. We can think about the description at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, for instance, the throne vision, or the description in the book of Revelation with all the um, living creatures and things like that. And what we're seeing then is a representation on a lower scale of the very throne presence of the Lord. And so when Solomon builds the temple, he recognizes that the temple is not actually the throne room of God. It's a representation of it. And people are called to pray towards that building. And the Lord hears from heaven. But the building cannot contain the Lord. No building can contain the Lord. But the Lord has bound himself, connected himself in promise to that particular building. And so he hears when his people pray towards it. In their prayer towards that building, they are symbolically praying towards his heavenly presence. And so as we see the colors, as we see the descriptions of certain elements, and we see the connections of those with the heavenly descriptions that we have in Ezekiel, in places like the Theophanies and Exodus, and in the book of Revelation, we're seeing that there is a direct connection between the Lord's presence above and the representation of his presence below. I'm coming on to talk about the cherubim in a moment because I absolutely love the cherubim. They fascinate me. But uh, what's the symbol symbolism behind the high priest's garments? Yes, it might be worth taking a step back here and thinking about the way that we can think about some of the connections between elements by reflecting upon the order in which the things are described for us in the book of Exodus. So the book of Exodus gives us the events of Sinai, the preparation for the theophany in chapter 19, chapter 20, the giving of the law, chapter 21 to 23, the case laws that are given, and then in chapter 24, the confirmation of the covenant. And then in chapter 25 to chapter 31, you have two cycles going through the seven days of creation, essentially. So you have the seven days of creation, each represented in two different stages. And so the various items of the tabernacle and the various processes associated with it in certain cases are associated with specific days of creation. So the first day of creation gets associated with the Ark of the Covenant, most particularly. It's the glorious light of the Lord's presence at the very heart. It's the throne. And so the ark and the mercy seat are connected to the throne of the Lord. They're the light at the center. Then you have connected with those the other gold items, the gold items of the lampstand, the table of showbread, the um, altar of incense. And those are in the second cycle. You have some of those. Then you have the second day is connected with two different things. In the first cycle, it's connected with the actual structure of the tabernacle. That's the firmament. If you think about it, it's that's, that's the division between the heaven and the earth symbolically. And so in the second day of creation, we're having the division between the various parts of the tabernacle that are established by the creation of that building. Then on the third day, you have the elements associated with the courtyard. First of all, the bronze altar. And then in the second stage, the bronze laver. Now that's connected with the division of the land and the sea, the 
altar, which represents the land, and the laver, which represents the waters. And that's within the general courtyard area representing the earth. On the fourth day, you have the lights placed in the firmament. And that's, again, we're seeing movements of the high priest and the priest being set up within um, the tabernacle. So it's the oil for the lamps and it's the oil for the priests in that particular stage. You can think about the way that the priests are anointed for their task. They are the lights. They have oil and the lamps have oil. And so the connection between the lamp and the priest is one worth thinking about. The lamp is connected with almonds and the almond is connected with watching. At the beginning of Jeremiah chapter one, for instance, there's the play upon the word for almond and the word for watcher. And the priest has the high priest, Aaron, has the rod that buds and it's almond blossoms. It's not an accident. And the blossom is also the same word that's used for the um, blossom or the plate that's on the high priest's forehead. And so the almond um, lampstand and the high priest connect to each other. Both of them are fed with oil and they both of them are burning with the light of the Lord's presence. So the sort of golden blossom on the altar of on the forehead of the priest is kind of the burning presence represents the burning of the Lord. We can think about what happens at Pentecost as well. Lights descending, fire descending upon the disciples and tongues of flame. And then the church represented as a candlestick. It's not accidental. This is all imagery that we have from the Old Testament. Then on the fifth day, it's the description of the high priest garments and also the incense. And so the clouds that are associated with the presence of the Lord, the clouds, as you go up into the presence of the Lord, you have these clouds of incense and it's connected with the birds and the um, animals or the birds flying across the face of the firmament. You can also think about the way that the priests are connected with things like the cherubim, part of the glory cloud of the Lord, and they're placed up in that realm and their garments are connected. So we see on the days of creation, the first three days correspond with the second three days. Day one with day four, light, placing of lights in the firmament. Day two, um, the division of the waters above from the waters beneath. Day five, waters above being having the birds flying across the face of the firmament, and then the waters of the sea filled with the fish. Day three, the creation of the division between water and the sea and the land, and then the creation of the land animals in day six, and then as the climactic creation of mankind. And so we have that structure then, then as well. So the high priest garments on day five, then on day six, it's the appointment of the high priest, of the priests. And it's Aaron and his sons in the first cycle. And then in the second cycle, it's Bezalel and Aholiab as those who are the builders of the structure. They're the um, constructors with the Lord of this world model. And we can think about that going back to Genesis, the Lord makes his creation and then he conscripts mankind to assist him in his creation. And so what we have in the building of the tabernacle is another structure like that. And then day seven, the worship is established. And at the very end, in the second cycle, as we go through, it's the establishment of the Sabbath as the element that really is the sign of the covenant. And all of those things are marked out with terms reminding us of forming and filling. So doing everything according to the pattern is the expression that repeats in the first process of that 
first cycle. And then in the second cycle, it's doing this throughout all of your generations. It's the um, delegation and continuation of those existing structures. So when we think about the garments of the high priest in terms of that, we can see immediately a connection between the second day and the fifth day. There's a connection between the structure of the tabernacle and the garments of the high priest. The structure of the tabernacle is a sort of, it's building as a garment. And then the high priest is a sort of garment as a building. And the high priest is dressed in a sort of tent and has a number of different layers. It goes out to more and more glory to include more of the creation. So it includes linen. It's the vegetable creation. It includes wool, part of the animal creation. It includes precious stones and gold. And so precious metals and um, elements from the earth. And this is an extension out into the world. And so just as the high priest is dressed in this way, he corresponds with the building that he serves within. And we can almost see that there is a correspondence outward for the high priest with the movement inward within the Holy of Holies or towards the Holy of Holies. So the high priest wears on his outer level the most glorious elements. So the um, blossom on his forehead or the plate on his forehead, holy to the Lord, and then also the breastplate. So those are the most glorious elements. And we can also see within those particular structures parallels with the um, Holy of Holies, the shape of them in the case of the breastplate, and then also the glory of them. They're connected with gold again. We can also think about the robe as connected with some of the divisions in terms of the um, veils and curtains. So there is this natural connection between the garments of the high priest and the building that he's serving within. We've got a couple of minutes left, Alistair. By Nick, I want to ask you about the cherubim. Uh, the Levitical priests had to guard the tabernacle, didn't they? How are they then a picture of the, these four strange creatures around the throne of God, the four cherubim? If we look back in Genesis chapter 3, it's the first introduction to the cherubim. They guard the entrance to the garden. They're there with a flaming sword. And in certain respects, that was the duty of the Levitical priests as well. They're supposed to guard and to serve. So they maintained the entrance to the holy place, ensuring that no one trespasses or transgresses the boundaries. And then also they're there to facilitate the actual worship in that place, holy and set apart in order to enter God's special presence. And the cherubim are... Um, most clearly seen in the book of Revelation and also in the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 10 as well of Ezekiel. And they are um, described as having these roles as part of the structure of the divine throne itself. The angels more generally are distinguished from these cherubim. The cherubim or the living creatures as they're described at the beginning of um, Ezekiel have a, a very significant great significance. They're described as having faces of a bull, face of an ox, face of an eagle, and face of a man. And they face in the different cardinal directions, um, so north, south, east, and west. We can see something of this within the tabernacle more generally. James Jordan, for instance, has suggested the way that Israel was ordered around the tabernacle was designed to allude to the order of the zodiac, and that the order of the zodiac is connected with the faces of the cherubim. 
Now you can see the way that Austin Farrer and others have argued that we see zodiacal patterns within the book of Revelation. This is not the sort of superstitious astrology that some people refer to. This is just showing that the world model is one in which the stars are given for signs. And so within that structure, the cherubim have a significance. They're connected with the four corners of the altar, for instance, and the winds associated with the four corners in the book of Revelation. We can see the way that the priests have roles that compare with the cherubim. I wouldn't say they're the same, but there are ways in which they can be connected together. The way that they move, for instance, um, the way that they're operating within the divine glory cloud, um, the place of the Lord's pres special presence, and the way that they're serving within that realm, along with the other angels that serve within the realm of the um, divine glory and the throne. And so the living creatures are at the very heart. We have in the very heart of the tabernacle, the Lord being seated above the cherubim. And that's a very common expression that we found find throughout the scripture. It's not just exclusive to a particular time, or nor to a particular type of literature, nor is it something that's exclusive to a particular author. We find it in many different stages of the Old Testament and many different books. It's referenced in the Psalms, in a number of the prophets, in 1 Samuel, various places like that. The Lord is enthroned above the cherubim, and the cherubim are in the very heart of the tabernacle. Now, that cherubim imagery extends as we move towards the temple. So extra cherubim are added in the very Holy of Holies. We have more cherubim drawn upon the um, walls and elsewhere. We have cherubim with the water chariots that lead out of the courtyard, lead out from the bronze sea in the courtyard. And so in this way, the cherubim imagery increases. And then when the Lord leaves the temple in, in the book of Ezekiel, his glory cloud leads, leaves, the, leaves the temple. And there's this sort of theophany with the cherubim and the glory cloud vacating this building. It's like a soul leaving a body. But the soul has the form is the form of the body. It's that which gives, which animates it, that gives it its it's related to the structure of the body. And so that departure is one in which we see this very close connection between the glory cloud and chariot of the Lord and the cherubim around it and the actual structure within the tabernacle itself or the temple as it has become. For that reason, I think we can see a lot of ways in which. The cherubim, as imagery, becomes more prominent. And partly that's because there's a movement more and more into a revelation of the very throne of God in history. And so that realm is slightly more off limits or slightly more obscured to people's view early on. It becomes more visible as time goes forward. I think we even see that in the way that the theophanies of the Lord are more and more dramatic as we go forward in scripture. So if we look through the book of Genesis, the theophanies are generally in humanoid form. And um, we can think about the way in which the Lord appears to Abraham, the way that the Lord wrestles with Jacob. And then we go into the book of Exodus and we have the Lord appearing in the burning bush, but then we have movement beyond that in the cloud, a pillar of cloud and fire. And then the descent in the glory cloud upon Mount Sinai. 
And these things are a movement up in glory. And I think we're seeing the same thing with the temple and the degree to which we see heaven imagery within it. Alistair Roberts, thank you very much. And uh, next time when we speak again, Alistair, we must talk about how Jesus fulfills the tabernacle. We haven't had a chance. That would be good. We haven't had a chance to do that. We're out of time, brother. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute. Where can people find you, Alistair? If they look for Adversaria Podcast, they can see most of the things that I produce. I'm mostly producing podcasts at the moment. I'm doing a complete audio commentary on the whole Bible, chapter by chapter. That's freely available if you search for um, my work. Just look for my name. You should be able to find it within the first few links. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Alistair. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.